0: Welcome to the Fired Coaches Podcast with host Marcus Wiegert. Each episode, we take a detailed look into the trials and tribulations that college coaches had to go through in their career, reflecting on what matters most. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter at Fired FiredCoachesPod. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Episode 47 of the Fired Coaches Podcast. Tonight, we have Matt Airy with us. Uh, Matt had played at Whitman back in the day, was an assistant at Bellevue Community College before returning to Whitman for 11 years, which actually I got to know you during that time. I believe it was the 14-15 season when you guys, I think, hung uh, three digits on the scoreboard against us in a complete blowout. And I was just truly impressed with what you guys could do on, on, on the court in terms of who you had starting, but also the guys you brought off the bench. Um, and then the last three seasons, you've been the head coach at Aurora University in the Chicagoland area. Matt, thanks for taking the time to join tonight.
1: Marcus, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to, to visit with you.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you taking the time, I guess. Can you kind of talk about your initial entry with coaching after you'd finished at Whitman, becoming an assistant at Bellevue Community College, and just kind of what that experience was all, all like for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, <laughs> Whitman's not typically a school you go to with uh, you know, I, ideas on on coaching, uh, especially Division three basketball, simply because, and I think more so now than when I went there. It's, uh, you know, it's a it's a private liberal arts school. It's got a it's got a, a high cost of attendance relative to a state school, and um, so you're putting a pretty penny up for that that uh, the liberal arts degree to dive into coaching. Uh, as I said, it wasn't quite quite that when I was there, but um, you know, ultimately, I I finished. Been go- I've go- been going back and coaching my high school's JV team in the summers every summer when I was playing. And um, then my last year, my high school coach took a, a assistant job at Washington State, but staff got let go my senior year at Whitman. And then um, I should say my first senior year, I, I, I did the super senior thing uh, after <laughs> blowing, it, blowing a, a knee out. But uh, he ended up landing the head job at Bellevue Community College. And uh, offered me the opportunity. His name's Jeremy Eggers. He runs a club program in uh, Washington that's very, very well known nationally, called Friends of Hoop. And um, and he asked me if I wanted to come on as the third assistant coach there. And uh, and and you know the idea was it was something I could work around a you know a real job so to speak. And I I looked at some full time jobs and I kind of found that not being able to do that and coach and participate there was a deal breaker. And so. I jumped in with Coach Eggers and um, I was, you know, it was really, I was really passionate am really passionate about the transformational opportunity of education and basketball kind of being the engine that you can build it, build a a real powerful vehicle around, you know, and so hopefully the idea that after, you know, two years and then another two years for our guys at at Bellevue, but four years at at the four-year institutions I've been at, you know, by the time they finish their, they're leaving there, and they're just completely outfitted for whatever's coming their way, uh, and and ready to separate themselves in in whatever's next. And so that that was kind of the burning fire. I got I got started there. I probably went to half of our games my first year because the other half I was out with a one of those giant camcorders, right, recording <laughs> recording our opponents to try to get VHS scout film. It was a while back, and by you know a couple of years later, I I had carved out a role as the top assistant. You know, I I. Kind of been enough of a presence around the athletic department after working multiple jobs that I, that I, I still was working multiple jobs, but they were at least all under one roof. I, I got some benefits just in time when I got off my parents' insurance and I learned a ton. I mean, uh, you know, Coach Eggers and Coach Bridgeland, the two guys I worked for, they were just exceptional in giving me responsibility and not micromanaging it and just saying, go do it and do it right. And we'll let you know when it's not right. And that can be a little intimidating, especially when, you know, you've got um, people above you that are direct in that feedback, but it was incredibly empowering because I left Bellevue feeling like I knew how to recruit. I knew how to um, run a practice. I knew how to plan for practice. I knew how to schedule. I knew how to, to do scout, scouting reports. I mean, I felt like I had, I was just armed completely with that experience. And we had a lot of success, you know, the um, year, year before I got there was Coach Eggers' first season. He picked up a really, a team that was in bad shape. And, um, and they'd had a nice little bounce back season. And then, you know, we'd won three North division championships in my time there, we made an NWAC all-star game or N.Y. championship game, excuse me. we sent a ton of players on to play, you know, after that, I remember one player we had who had a, a bit of a learning disability and had been, you know, kind of sent away for school, like hard luck story. And uh, a few years ago, he just, he got his doctorate in psychology. He's a practicing psychologist making way more money than all of us. Uh and this was a guy nobody would have guessed it guessed it would happen. And so that I mean I would actually say that was kind of the big story out of that for me. And then from there I ended up I ended up getting an opportunity to go to Whitman. I think
0: you touched on a lot, obviously a lot of great things there. But that last point, I mean, it's funny and all the coaching that you've done and all the success you've had or regardless of what level you're at, those stories are by far the absolute best at the end of the day, right? Where it's maybe yep. somebody who you're here like all the time we invested in, or they had to change their habits or whatever it is. And their end story is just something um, so unbelievable. You know, the benefits thing, it's funny, we've done 47 episodes and no one's talked about all those entry-level jobs you're getting into into coaching and how you're like, Hey, I can only hang on my parents' stuff here for so long until I really got to figure something out. And the micromanaging piece, I mean, that's, that's amazing that both those coaches had that where it was like, do it the right way. If you don't, you know, you'll, you'll know, but just don't make that mistake again. I think that's, so key. And obviously so many people struggle with that, that ability to kind of give that up.
1: It's not for everybody. Uh, you got to have a thick skin. Um, you got to be ready to be held accountable. You got to want to respond, you know, and, and, you know, to your point about like the stories about the the players, if, if that's not what you're, I mean, if that's not what stands out, you might be in it for the wrong reasons. I mean, coaching is not for everybody. Um, and, and I think that environment's not for everybody. Some people need to be kind of led along a little more. For me, it was very much what I needed, and uh, I didn't always like it, but it was definitely, it was powerful in, in shaping that in tra- trajectory of my career starting out. Yes,
0: yeah, so you returned to Whitman, I believe it was 2008, right? Just four years yeah. after you kind of finished playing. Um, you joined Coach Bridgeland, who you just kind of mentioned in terms of him helping you out there at Whitman, um, but you come back to their what was that process like? Obviously, when I got to know you, you guys had things just really starting to get to that top of the peak where you guys were just firing on all cylinders. But what was it like before that and kind of building that?
1: They're always good people. I mean, uh, you know, I played at Whitman and and I think we won, you know, 32 games and lost 80 or something like that. I mean, it was, it, we were not a successful team in terms of, in terms of wins and losses, but but my best friends in the world were and still most are, you know, people that I came to know playing at Whitman. And uh, matter of fact, I got the job because when Coach Bridgeland got the job, we knew each other a little bit. We'd sent a player down to Pepperdine when he was there as an assistant. Um, and we'd had a little bit of contact over that. And I would see him in the summers because we ran an event in our gym, um, a viewing period event. But but it was actually through a teammate, a former teammate of mine, another one of my best friends, that he initially was trying to get to come be the assistant who had a really good high school teaching and coaching job in Northern California and coach bridge had been recruiting his brother. And that was the connection for me. So even though we weren't successful, the caliber of person and athlete there was, was fantastic. And, and uh, the caliber of person, I should say, when we first got there, um, the talent level wasn't where it needed to be, but the people they were really solid, really solid kids, really solid people from good families. And there's so much potential in it. Right. Because you know, if you get people like that, that you know, upgrade the talent a little bit, keep the fabric, you're going to have people and get them all pulling the same way. You're going to, you're going to have a powerful thing, you know? And so when we got there, they'd won five games the year before out of, out of 25. I think we went nine and 16, our first year, uh, 11 and 12, our second year. And then we were 18 and two or 18 and, um, 18 and nine, I think the second, the the, the following year. And that was the first winning season in 25 years. It was a lot of fun.
0: And I love, I mean, going back to that day that I met you and we played um, at mm. your place, I love that gym. I think that gym is like the epitome of a Division <laughs> three gym. It's yeah. really nice, but it's very intimate, right, where if you get some people in there, you get 25 or you get a 1,000, right? It's going to be a loud place to play in. Um, you guys go Sweet 16 in 2016, Final Four in 2017, where you're 31-1, and Elite Eight 2018, What was that like from, again, when you're getting back there as a player, and like you said, not a lot of success as a a player when you were there, but to build it and get it to that point, did you ever think like this could happen? I mean, obviously, that's always like a goal to get there, but did you really feel like that could happen?
1: You know, I think the journey from bad or average to good is a lot easier to do than the journey from good to great. And I think that's because it's very easy for everybody to define good and processes that lead to good. I think it's very difficult to nail down exactly what particular group particular team needs in a given moment in a given instance with given people in order to coalesce together and become great. I think there's a lot of common threads, but how you weave them is very specific to time place people. And so it took us three years to have the first winning season in 25 years took us four years before we actually made a tournament. And even then we got one of the last at-large bids out there. And really because there was only a couple of upsets. Um, I don't know that we get, if there's five or six upsets among the top three or four teams in a lot of regions, I don't know if, if, if we make the cut, but, but we did. That was kind of the first time, I think for us, that it, it wasn't about you know, beating Whitworth, who was our big rival. Um, it wasn't about making the tournament and the accolade of that. It was just about keeping this great thing going. Uh, you know in, in, in lockstep with that a year prior I think we had a chance to make a a really good run the year prior but we had one of our most integral players break his leg with like seven games to go we were we were pressing and running and I think we had we beat Whitworth by like 16 like 26 at home and they were really good but we were just we we're playing as well as anybody in the country and then we lost kind of our our heartbeat and our 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 defensive leader. And that really changed the dynamic of the team. Prior to that, we kind of got to this point where we just said, you know what, we believe in the guys we have, we believe in the people we have, we believe that they want it. So we're going to stop applying pressure to them in practice to perform. We're going to stop leaning hard on guys and running guys when we don't win or mfing people in practice or get really getting into guys We're going to let them have the opportunity to address that stuff. And if it doesn't get addressed and it gets to us, then fine. But we pulled back a little bit and kept the caveat that anybody that's not on board, anybody that's got agendas separate from the teams, we reserve the right to remove. And we had to do that. Having the right people in the right place. It's interesting. If I were to break it down, I would say the first thing is show them what's great. The second thing is make it theirs. And the third thing, and this is what it took us a few years to figure out, get the fuck out of the way. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sorry to, to curse on your, on your podcast, but oh, good. but the, the fuck is kind of the most important part because it's really hard to do that because as coaches, we care so much. We're so invested. We put so much into it. We make so many sacrifices with our families to be able to step back and, and really trust them and give it to them and let them set and, and enforce standards is hard. It's really hard to do, but it's, a step that has to happen if you're going to have a sustained great run. And maybe I'm just biased because that's how kind of it worked for us. But that's really how it felt is once we got to make we we made it theirs and we got out of the way uh, and were purposeful about it. Boy, they they just, you know, that doesn't mean we didn't have our crises. Everybody does, right? Over the course of seasons. But boy, they they were so resilient and they were so tough to take down. It was it was a joy to be around, really most fun I've ever had in basketball.
0: Yeah. And obviously, you know, at all levels, right. Everybody's heard, well, it's gotta be a players led team and all this stuff too. But honestly, at the end of the day, and I think especially in division three, I don't care what sport you're in because of the, the limited kind of time to be around people. Like at the end of the day, it really has to be that player's program to be able to figure things out, to be able to lead each other and everything else.
1: I think you're uniquely positioned that way in Division three too, because there's no possibility of financial coercion. Whether it's now NLI, which is a monster in and of itself, or even at Division two NAI level, just your athletic scholarship, there's no pulling money. It's it's you know they're paying to be there, they're making an investment. Um, your job is to 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 hold them to the standards they say they want to be held to, and uh, collectively, and uh, and to make sure hopefully you get to a point where they. They do that. You really try to maximize the return on that investment with the experience that you give them. And you can't cut corners. You can't do it half fast. You know, I think when you have the right people that that share that vision and are emotionally just completely engaged in what the team's doing, you got something special. And, And it's like there are egos on that team. There were guys that wanted to play more. They wanted a different role. I think with, like, as with most teams, you could go down the line and everybody has a suggestion for how we could have used them in a better way or how they would have liked to have played. That's human nature. What they were willing to do was set that aside and make what we were trying to accomplish collectively um, the larger goal. That was just magic. Like you say, I, I, I think that the objective is to get there. It's a hard place to get to. If you, le- you seed that control too early, it'll hurt you. I mean, the, the inmates will run the asylum, right? And, and the point is to to get them out of the asylum and then let them and, and turn them into the orderlies, right? That's the idea.
0: Yeah. No, like you said, I mean, it's so delicate, right? I mean, again, it's just about finding that that good to great, right? I mean, everybody, like you yep. said, you can get to good, but how do you get to great and how timely that is? You kind of touched on a little bit, but I know we had talked about this and I think it was after we played you guys, but just how unique that playing style was. I mean, did you mm-hmm. always practice that fast too? I mean, were practices you know, on the move constantly, like, like a game situation, like you guys played and how many people you played kind of getting up and down that way?
1: The short answer is yes. Coach Bridgelin is one of the original kind of masters of the the pressing dribble drive binary system, you know, that Vance Wahlberg is accredited, rightfully accredited for, you know, he had played that way. We didn't play that way at Bellevue. Um, so that was something that I, I learned, you know, from him, but he really adapted it when he was at Puget Sound and kind of made some adjustments that are outside of the Wahlberg scheme a little bit. At Whitman, especially in the first couple of years, we tinkered with a lot of things. We played some zones. We did different things. We generally still pressured people and we played kind of a penetration-based offense with space, but, but it evolved over time. So that's time we played you guys. I think we had, really, we had really fell into a rhythm with having an ability to speed people up, to have kind of a hybrid man-zone press where we, we might trap, we might not. We might be in a zone structure. We might be matched up man-to-man. We might trap you after half court. We might just react and run and jump here and there, or we may just not, we may just pressure you, depending on the matchup and um, and how we felt about our foot speed and, and, you know, where our advantages were. So it really had, it, it doesn't look like it, but it had a lot of nuance to it. And that was, again, Coach Bridgeland is, is in my opinion, as good a coach as there is in basketball anywhere. I've been to NBA practices. I've, I've been to Division one practices. I've seen some really fantastic coaches, He's there with all of those folks. And so I was really privileged to get to learn from him. And, and the system was one where we were really focused on possessions, trying to control some possession differentials with offensive rebounding and turnovers, but then hopefully be able to not have kind of the, the system, you know, whether it be Grinnell or Greenville, where where we're, we're just all in and it's kamikaze, uh, but where we have the opportunity to come back and play half-court pressure defense. And by the time we played you guys, that had really kind of found a groove. Very unfortunate for us. <laughs> you guys, we shot it well. You guys caught us on a good night. And it's, it, it, it's a much bigger advantage in the first 14 games of the year because it's harder. Teams aren't as prepared for it, right? Especially non-conference. First round of conference, second round of conference, teams have got a few things ready. They've been working against it. But that's one of the advantages too, is that teams really have to spend a lot of time preparing for it. And for us, we, we, to, this was kind of a concept from Mike Dunlap, but the idea that we're going to steal the other team's practice time They're going to spend a ton of time getting ready for us. We're going to stick with what we do, but tweak it, you know, for them and try to make some small adjustments as opposed to big adjustments. And by the end of the game, we think that we can execute our small adjustments for longer than they can execute their big adjustments. And so, you know, it's, it gives you a lot of freedom. You get to play a ton of guys because (laughs) You can't play 35, 40 minutes in that style of play. Uh, LeBron can't play that much in that style of play. So it's, it, it, it lets, it also lets a lot of guys contribute and get involved and builds a lot of confidence that way too. So I loved it. I absolutely love playing that way.
0: And that's what I thought was so interesting. Again, i obviously you only played your team in Whitman once, but um, playing Grinnell a few times, And even though that system was different, it was, hey, we're taking this whole week, you know, in that conference, we played them on Friday, Saturday at the time but you're taking literally that whole week to prepare for what they did. And it was, to me, it's like, well, this is really unique because they obviously have the upper hand that way of shutting everybody down to really lock in on what they're doing.
1: It's unique. It's fun. There's more nuance to it than people think. It looks like chaos a lot, but there there really are more layers to it. And again, it doesn't matter your system. We had guys that bought into it, that owned it, that made it theirs. And so we look bright as coaches. We worked at the same thing in Aurora. And for a variety of reasons, COVID being a big one, we didn't have the same kind of buy-in and connection with it. We didn't look nearly as good. And we were doing some tactically some really sound and good things. Doesn't matter. They, you know, it's it's everybody's got to be locked in and, and bought in. Um, sure. and so that the players really deserve a ton of credit for that. And Coach Bridgeland as well for being a master at kind of cultivating that buy-in.
0: Can you talk about the Whitman Whitworth rivalry?
1: <laughs> I feel
0: personally again playing you both on, on kind of back-to-back nights. The West Coast, maybe not getting as much Division Three love just because there isn't as many out there. But, you know, Hope Kelvin or YX and CCWs, whoever you, you throw out there. To me, I've watched a lot of those games, obviously getting to know you a bit after that, you know, watching those games online and just how intense and, and again, how great both programs were. Can you just talk about what that was like being, what is
1: it, two, two and a half hours away from each other? Yeah, two and a half. Yeah, it's not far from me now. Actually, I live in Spokane now, so uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's down the road, I'm a little afraid to drive that way and buy a sandwich. If someone recognizes me, I might be up all night. You know, um, no, it, it it was it was a fantastic rivalry. Whitworth had a great program for 30 years. They've been the dominant program in the Northwest Conference. It took us eight, seven, eight years, seven years to actually finally overcome them. Even though we had we'd been the team, the only team that could beat them with any regularity in the conference. I think it would have been the only, we had been for like a span of like six or seven years, we've been the only team that ever beat them uh, in conference play. So they were, they were, they were phenomenally good for us because we had to grow and adapt and deal with adversity and they forced us to evolve um, tactically. They forced us to evolve culturally. You can't have anything better than a really tough conference rival. For the growth of your program i mean it doesn't feel like it all the time but it's truly a gift you know I, I having been out in the midwest for a few years now i mean whitworth would be at the top of any conference with the teams they typically have right they would have no problem in the cciw it doesn't mean they'd win it every year the cciw always has fantastic teams it's obviously deeper than northwest conference but they would have no problem competing with the top teams in the cciw and and so to face that monster and overcome it i mean i think we finished my last four years, I think we finished, we beat them 10 out of 11 times in four years. And the, and the one was a 30 foot buzzer beater in the conference championship game. That was a gift to us, frankly, because it, it, it slapped us in the face. We were 26 and 0 and undefeated. This is in 20, 2017, 18, we were 26 and 0, number one in the country undefeated. And they beat us on a 30 foot buzzer beater, but they played well enough to beat us. You know, whether that sh- you know, shot goes in or not, they played well enough to beat us and they cut the nets down on our court and deserved to, and it was great for us, you know? And that was the one loss among, among 11 games. Um, but what was really interesting, Marcus, was that where it became special, I think, and where that run really ignited was when it stopped being about beating Whitworth, you know? And when, when our focus as a program and our season didn't have validation because we did or didn't beat Whitworth when it was more about us pulling together and overcoming a really strong opponent and or moving, taking a step in the journey that we were trying to take together, this journey to hopefully win a national championship, that's where we really started a run of success over them, which, you know, again, they're a fantastic program. Suddenly wasn't about beating Whitworth. Um, It was about how good can we be together? How much can we pull together? How close can we be tonight? How good can we be tonight? Possession by possession. And we win or we don't. If we don't win, we'll learn from it. And that's precisely what happened when we did lose to them in the conference championship is we had to look that one square in the eye. We had to watch them cut the nets down on our floor. And we as a staff got to sit down. I remember sitting with Coach Bridglin afterwards talking. And we were going, this may very well be the best thing that could have happened to us all season. That might be the most important game of the season. And we go to the Elite Eight. No business going to the elite eight. We had some injuries. We were missing two all conference guys from the, the year before we went to the final four to go to the elite eight. Does because Whitworth came in and played a hell of a game and beat us. And we had to look that in the eye. And our and our to our guys to their credit were strong enough to do that, rally around it, grow from it. And then we we take care of business in in our opening pod. And then we beat Stevens Point in Wisconsin in the sweet 16. I mean, that's insane. Steven's point's ridiculous. <laughs> you talk about a championship culture, right? None of that happens if if we, if we Whitworth doesn't, if that 30-footer rims, rims out, I don't know that we get out of the first weekend, let alone get to the Elite Eight. Um, and so every game is a gift. Every loss is a bigger gift, you know, when you're in that mode. And uh, like I said, that's why it was such a treat to be in those games because they were so good and they challenged us so much and they forced us to grow for so many years before we were in a position to have a a run of success against them.
0: That's all a great insight. And I remember at one time talking to you about the way you guys played, and you had mentioned to me that if you ever came to play Midwest teams in the NCAA tournament, you wanted to have kind of that unique style that they had to prepare for. Nobody ever really talks about timely losses that are, not that you want them, right? But if they do happen, it is that chance to grow and almost kind of be like you could breathe a little bit, right? Like you're not so uptight that you're, you got to keep the streak going or whatever else that's around you and people telling how good maybe you are and just, you know, taking that step back for a second there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the truth. And, and yes, on your point about the Midwest, like, uh, you know, we played my last year with Whitman, we played Illinois Wesleyan and they were, they were just monsters. They were so good. We beat them. We, we didn't, we didn't play especially well, neither the day. So it was, we, we beat them like 105, 103. We were on a neutral in California and, um, they were so good and so talented. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, that would be a hard game to be within 20 if we walk the ball up, even with the same roster. And so the idea was, look, we're, and I can tell tell you now, I can validate this after having been in the Midwest for a few years. At a place like Whitman, you're not going to get the kind of players and the kind of talent that you need. I don't think, or I don't know how to win in a half court game against the monsters that come out of The Midwest out of the uh, out of the CCIW out of the Midwest Conference out of the Three Rivers uh, out of the UAA like good luck I mean (laughs) those teams are so tough to take down in a half court game because they're so fundamental they're so polished they all shoot it they're strong as an ox they're bigger than you you know they're 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 better looking I mean you know like what are you gonna do (laughs) some of my former players would take offense at that but but. (laughs) but it's the truth, right? And so having that style of play, we felt was a major advantage because we could make people play our way. And we were pretty good at our way. So you were at Whitman
0: for 11 years after you came back four-year stint at Bellevue, took the Aurora job in April of 2019. What kind of made Aurora that right fit and that opportunity for you to leave
1: what you guys had going on at Whitman? There's a couple of things. One, uh, and I know you know this, it is extraordinarily hard to get a head coaching job. Uh, at the four-year level, especially, like extraordinarily hard. I don't think, I don't think people, in fact, I know now I'm out, I'm out of coaching for a few months. I know that people outside of coaching don't, don't comprehend that you can, you can apply for the, the worst performing job in a conference, let's say, you know, let's say a team goes 0 for 25, the coach, you know, moves on and you apply. there's going to be 200 applicants, guaranteed 200 people trying to get that job. Minimum you know unless it's out in the middle of nowhere and then it might be 190 right
0: you're not wrong uh, at all
1: it's it's the nature of the it's the nature of the profession so you know any opportunity to get i mean I'll put it this way we broke every conference record that exists for winning for we won 56 consecutive conference games in the northwest conference i had two jobs that i applied for within the conference the fall before my final year and we had just come off Sweet 16, Final Four, 3101, and Elite Eight. And I couldn't get an interview. Um, I didn't even get a phone interview. I got one phone interview, but I I couldn't make a top four or five because people were uncomfortable with kind of what we built in a way. You know, a division three in particular, I think not everybody is trying to accomplish the same things. There are schools where you know you could take uh you could take uh Ron Rose at Illinois Wesleyan and he could put in for a job at a school that's, you know, 500 and they wouldn't interview him because they'd be concerned that he would cause too much of a stir trying to make basketball good. And and that that's not the way they wanna try to be good. And so it's hard, especially in division three, it's hard to get jobs, number one. Uh, Number two, you can't argue with, uh, you know, Aurora you know, when I got there, it had 26, you know, seasons in a row where it'd been a winning season or at least 500. You know, the pitch they made to me was that they really wanted to try to make the leap from good to great. I'd just done that. I've been through that. It was amazing. The opportunity to try to do that at a place that really had an appetite for it, because Whitman didn't kind of know what it was as it was happening. And kind of didn't it was just kind of out of, you know, out of the blue for the university, for the, the college. But at Aurora, the university really w- wanted that. Um, and, and and that's kind of what they they put to me. So that was very exciting. And I felt like it was time. We, we built something really special at Whitman. We'd had an incredible run. We graduated a, the winningest senior class in the history of Division three, And um, why not? If not now, when? So that was kind of what, it, what went into that decision. And my wife and I were both at a point, to be honest, where our son wasn't born yet. And we felt like if we didn't make that move now, we probably won't. And we were both kind of itching to see a different part of the country and go somewhere else. um, Because we'd all been in the Northwest forever, basically. And so that that certainly played into you never you never take a job across the country, as you know, Marcus, without getting permission from the boss. And so I I had that blessing. (laughs) That's always key.
0: You know, it's funny, you've said so much great stuff on this podcast but the way you put that with jobs at division three and the different philosophies at institutions, it is almost kind of a mystery, you know, because everyone is a little bit different and some, you think maybe a priority is here. It's not there. It's, it's so true. And it is, it's very hard to get those jobs. So you get the Aurora job. And I know I, you know, was at Lakeland at the time had a chance to, to face you guys that 1920 season comes to an end. And obviously that whole, you know, the whole world just gets flipped upside down. You know, talk about that first year, but then also going through that experience of trying to deal with kind of the COVID ramifications. uh,
1: You talk about learning experiences. I can't, I can't give you enough things that I don't think I did right that first year, Um, and and I think that's part and parcel with being a first year head coach. I went into a situation where the previous coach was still local, great guy, an alum, and 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 it, it wasn't a departure that the players were happy about. I mean, they had just they'd come out of nowhere and won the conference tournament and made the NCAA tournament. And, and so it was, it was a a really tough pill to swallow for a lot of the guys that were back. Um, I came in just like, who knows who, like, who am I? Right. I'm coming in out of nowhere. I got this different style of play. I got, you know, there are guys that are feeling like it's their, it's their year and I'm messing that up because I'm coming in with all these different things, ways of doing things that are uncomfortable. And so, and I don't think that's an unusual challenge. Um, like I say, I think if I were to redo that year, I think we'd have a lot more success because I think I could play things a little bit differently in terms of like sticking to my guns and because we changed our style of play partway through the year. And I don't think I would have done that. I think, uh, I also think though, that I, I have different ways that I would have implemented the style of play that would have been a lot easier for the players to adapt to. So it was challenging from a basketball standpoint, but then, you know, to to hit lockdown, you know, Marcus, I'll put it this way. I was at Aurora for three years. Um, the only time we ever had an open gym with recruits in the spring was my first year. And we had one because that was all we had time for before school got out and everybody went home. I and mean, we were out of the gym from mid-March until October 1st, um, like completely out of the gym. You know, we had a month of four-man workouts, basically, nothing more than like four people on the floor at a time. I think we had four on four going a little bit, but that was super limited. And it was, it was all required to be optional. We couldn't require people to be there, you know, for fear of of COVID lawsuits. Everybody's doing virtual classes. I mean, it was, it was challenging. Then we had a two and a half month break, came back and had this truncated season in year two. And so, it, 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 you know, again, we're trying to institute a, a, a foundational culture change. And a pandemic is not, it's not the best partner in trying to do that.
0: They don't write a book on a, how to coach, right. And, and fit a team and, and mold that, but then you get the pandemic thing thrown on top of it. And I mean, again, obviously a lot of people have gone through it and everything else, but I can imagine coming into that and the situation to deal with. So like you mentioned that second season, very limited as you're just touching on this past year, you end up resigning um, in late February how did you know that that was kind of the right thing for you to do, you know, kind of at that time?
1: Well, you know, the, the second year, we ended up having a nice season. In spite of all that, we went, I think we had an eight and four in our 12 games. Um, we made the the conference division championship, lost a close game. We beat Benedictine. who's was the big rival on the road in the playoffs, which was a big win. So there was a lot of good feeling about the program, but unfortunately we had a, a COVID outbreak literally on our last game day. We had a guy that got, came down with symptoms on the bus, home. So I had to actually happened to drive separately. I had to drive him home in my car by myself, which was the windows were down and, you know, March in Chicago land, it's not when you don't want to be driving with the windows down, but the windy, windy,
0: windy city for a reason, right?
1: Man. Yeah. Windy city in about 30. Um, so I don't know if it helped his COVID, but I didn't get it. So it probably helped me, but we had a little outbreak and um, that um, resulted ultimately in us Having to be shut down that entire spring as well. That was a real, that was really damaging to our recruiting and to our culture building because, you know, we lost multiple recruits where we had to cancel an open gym the day of because kind of the decision came down that we needed to shut this thing down for the spring. And they didn't come to our open gym, they went to somebody else's, and guess where they ended up going, right? And that's just, that's nobody's fault. It's just the circumstance, right? I, you know, my son was born to a COVID positive mother, my wife, um, and she ended up in the ICU for six days. And that was incredibly difficult for our family. So I have no misgivings about Aurora's policy with COVID. Like I was on board, am on board. I think they made the right calls every time with COVID. I have no argument, but it hurt us. Um, uh, and and there, there's a price to be paid for that. And, um, and we paid it, it hurt our recruiting. And then the following year, this last year, we were very, very young, very small. I thought we had some spark. We had some, we were, we were starting to build a little bit of momentum and then we got shut down again. I mean, between, between December, I think 16th and January 16th, we in, in the 30 day span, we had 31 day span. We had eight days of participation total in terms of practices and games, um, multiple games canceled. We had a little stretch shut down, little stretch, shut down. Um, you know, and so we came back and we had a rally. We, we had a good game or two. And then we had two more players that got, you know, two of our starters, including our leading scorer who got shut down with COVID again. And we just kind of fell apart. And, you know, Aurora has justifiably a ton of pride in their basketball tradition um, they were concerned about the direction of the program. I was concerned about the direction of the program. Um, you know, the, the, the frustration of the season was, was evident with, with everybody in the program. Um, and, I, and we ultimately kind of came to the decision that, you know, they, they felt like, boy, we, we really feel strongly that we need to make, you know, a move in a different direction. And we, we discussed that and ultimately decided it was better if they're going to do that uh, sooner than later. Um, you know, and so I didn't have to step down when I did. I did that in service to the university um, to give them more time to undertake a coaching search and to get the job out there and to try to find the right person. All I want is to see Aurora successful, Um, you know, and so um, that was really hard. It was really hard. You know, it was was obviously traumatizing, I think, for the players to have a change made like that. Uh, Ultimately, though, they hired a fantastic coach, in Steve Christensen. I mean, I don't know that you can do better. Uh, I think he'll be phenomenal there. I think, I think things will get right back on track. I think he can take them to places they've not been, and I'm nothing but pulling for that, you know, because um, there's there's some really good people at Aurora. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, we both kind of decide. I had some pulls out to the northwest too. Um, my wife had been offered a really good job out here, kind of her dream job, prior to all of this happening, and so. You know, it 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 made some sense if they were feeling like they they wanted to make a change, and we had things pulling our family back out here. I don't know that it's I mean right to dig my heels in and you know grind it down to the last wire and leave with bad feelings when it's probably something that they want to do anyway. And so I, I hopefully that answers your question. But that's that's really kind of the story there. And like I said, I mean nothing but but positive things to say about aurora and um and i'm only pulling for those guys
0: now you mentioned you're going you're you're back in the west coast now is coaching ever i I know you know ever is kind of (laughs) a tough word but do you ever see yourself getting back in whether it's college level high school level club ball anything
1: like that you can't go cold turkey marcus you know that (laughs) i'm working in in an education space right now that i'm really enjoying but um you know, being a Whitman for 11 years, I know a lot of coaches out in the Spokane area. We recruited out here. I actually have a, a cousin that's playing for a team out this way, so I'm hoping to get involved with, with some high school teams, maybe some club ball in the summer, uh, and keep scratching that edge. Keep trying to, you know, add some value and create some life lessons through basketball. Creates probably the wrong word, but guide guys into life lessons through basketball. Uh, I'm I'm a, I just I'm a big believer in that. I don't think we were doing that. As to the level I would like at Aurora which is part of my kind of reasoning for stepping aside I want them to have that but but there's definitely an opportunity to do that at the high school level here and who knows maybe I'll I may I may get back in down the line certainly um I love the game I love I love teaching I love you know those stories about the guys that go on to do incredible things with basketball being a you know an engine that gets you know that they they kind of Build around to get there, um, and so that's—I don't think that's something I'll ever be able to fully give up.
0: Tough to get that out of your system, especially when you've done it for so long, and
1: you see all those successful stories
0: and those relationships. With all the changes going on in college athletics right now, a lot of it obviously at the Division One level. But what are your thoughts on the whole transfer portal, NIL, one-time transfer? I mean, where do you kind of see everything going that way?
1: I would say we're at a low point in terms of the coaching profession, not because of the individuals involved, but because of the circumstance. I think that's temporary. I think that, you know, market's correct. And I think that over time people adjust and we're in a, a, a time of chaos. The, the frustrating part is it was all avoidable. The NCAA had, oper- they could see it coming, you know, they're spending tens of millions of dollars on litigation to defend uh, an indefensible position. Uh, and they know it, their lawyers are telling them that and they're doing it anyway. They're digging their heels in. And they stood on the tracks and let the train hit them. Uh, and so the athletes and the coaches are paying the price because I think NIL could have been handled in a way where there was there was an agreement, even a collective agreement on structure for NIL and how that was going to play out where athletes could profit off their name, image, and likeness, but there would be some-
0: Restrictions um, or whatnot.
1: Form of collective bargaining where there were going to be some universal limitations to, to keep the market corrections under control, those, those aren't in place. And, and so you're seeing these wide swings. The NCAA said they were going to regulate on certain elements of NIL, didn't. And now they're saying they're going to do that retroactively. That's BS. They can't, that won't hold up. No one's paying the price, I don't think, for that. Um, that's, that's kind of all talk, I think. Um, you know, the same thing with the transfer portal I, again, I, I think kids should be allowed to transfer. I think they, they should have that right. But I, I, I think the way that it was handled and the, 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 fact that the NCAA fought it in the, in the fashion that they did. And again, the fact that they weren't willing to come to the table to try to find a really reasonable way to make this equitable means that we've created a Juco system at every level outside of the power five. And so I think you're looking at everything below the power five and even in the power five to an extent, everybody's going to school, not everybody, but a lot of people are going to school with the idea of um, trying to make the leap to the next level. And so what it does is it makes the relationships intrinsically transactional. What are you gonna do for me? How are you gonna get me to where I, you know, to the next school, and when we would recruit guys, there was certainly an element of, well, what's Whitman going to do for me? What's Aurora going to do for me? What's Bellevue going to do for me to get me where I want to go? But there was a buy-in component to that, and an investment component to that is like, yeah, after four years, yeah, after two years, this is where we think you could be if you work, and here's how we'll get you there, and we'll get as detailed as you need to, and we'll put that in writing, and we'll follow it step by step. We did that, I don't know how exactly to do that when your best freshman recruit is trying to work out when he can leave. And God bless the coaches that are working through it because there's they're having to ad- adapt to an environment that is crazy right now. I mean, I know coaches that have hung their hat for decades on building programs with four-year guys who are taking one-year transfers now because you don't have a choice. I think that I'm sure that they'll do everything they have, they can, to create the best one-year experience that they can, but it's just not going to measure up to a four-year journey. And athletes shouldn't be forced into a four-year journey by any means, and they shouldn't have to pay huge expenses and huge penalties if they don't, if they want to change. But the way the NCAA handled this has made it to where we've almost discouraged that. And we've, we've made it unfashionable in a sense to go to a place with the idea that you're going to be there for four years. Um, And I think that's really, really a um, existential challenge for coaches. And so I think as we try to grapple with this and deal with the conflict and without any real guidance uh, from, from our institutions, I mean, not our, our individual schools and institutions, but the broader institution of the NCAA, the NAI, like I think, I, I, I think it's gonna be a, a, um it's gonna be a tough road to hoe for the next few years, you know, but it'll correct. They're really good people in coaching that will win out, but it's gonna be really messy. And honestly, that that's something that makes me want to wait and see a little bit when I think about getting back into coaching, because my love for it, and we talked about this at the start of the podcast, but my memories are about guys that went from, you know, being, being at boarding school and, and in drug rehab programs to getting their PhD and basketball being the guiding the guiding engine, right? Like, that's incredible. That's what I was on fire about when I got into the business. And so it's, it feels like that's never been more difficult to do. I'm, I'm hopeful that we have the leader's and the quality of people and coaching at every level. And I'm confident that we have the people and quality of people and coaching at every level that will figure out how to how to get back to that and how to do that in a new world. But right now it's chaos, man. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting podcast out the other day. I was listening to that was touching on college football and the the Addison kid who transferred just now from Pitt to USC, who's kind of really been in the media a lot about is he going there? What are they offering him, whatnot? And they made a good you know, thing because they said you know what a phenomenal season he had last year, and over the last few years he has that pit as a wide receiver, and even had some better years than Larry Fitzgerald. And now that he's left, like, do you ever include him in like a Hall of Fame or a Ring of Honor or whatever? You know, it's like all these things with a lot of these kids where you may have played two, three years at a school, did great things, and then left because there is that next step as you're mentioning that everyone's looking to get to, and how does that relationship you know with the university? Um, and again kind of a minuscule thing, but another, just a layer of stuff that, you know, kind of goes on with all of this.
1: You know, Marcus, it's a great point. And if you want a prediction, if I were to guess, I would say that a certain upper crust, and I don't know if that's limited to the power five, I'm in Spokane, Gonzaga's in Spokane. They're not in a power five conference. I think there's going to be an upper crust, maybe a hundred schools or something like that, that are going to break away entirely from college athletics. And I think their institutions will, I think it'll be a pro league and I think their institutions will license out their logos and name. And I think it will be a minor pro league. Um, And then I think that will, I think that will create a little more balance with everybody else and a little bit more of a refocus on kind of the education model. And I'm sure there will be some, you know, opportunity to jump ship from here to there, but I think the, I think it might slow the flood of people trying to climb the ladder from JUCO to D3 to D2 to, I mean, there were a couple of guys in the NCAA tournament that were stars this year in division one that had been at five schools. Um, that's great for them. That could be the right road for some. They're, it's the wrong road for a lot in the majority, um, I would argue. And so a model that encourages that I think is damaging to student athletes. So I think we'll correct for it. But if you're to ask me, I don't think that we have a choice, but that there's a, 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 uh, an upper crust that's going to, that's going to go effectively pro and separate from college athletics. And, um, and then we'll have maybe a little less uh, visibility, but we'll have a structure at least that's more of an education-based model.
0: I guess to finish up here, how do you get better as a leader? Is there any books, um, newsletters, podcasts, anything that you like to listen to on a weekly or monthly basis?
1: Well, first and foremost, I listen to the fired coaches podcast three times a day, and I just, I, you know, I make sure I memorize each each uh, (laughs) episode. Although this will have to be an exception. Um, (laughs) uh, No, yeah, I mean, uh, you do. You have some great people on 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 the podcast. It's fun to listen to. But I, I, I listen to I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I, I read as much as I can. I read a lot of articles. I try to, you know, I try to kind of get bite-sized thoughts that still have some nuance. I think that's really useful for me right now in, 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 this time. But to be honest with you, I try to do a lot of listening, um, which is ironic because I think I've probably talked too much on this podcast tonight, What this podcast is all about, <laughs> but really I, I, in general, you know, I I'm fortunate in the role I'm in now. And then the, in the, uh, education company I'm working for that I get to, I get to interact with a lot of leaders in the business world, specifically in the um, in the software um, service world, I get to ask them about what's working and what's not and kind of what their goals are and what their visions are for leading their team it's part of my job and uh, and I get a chance to listen to some really really sharp, really interesting people and and I, I mean I think that fundamentally it doesn't matter how many books you read or podcasts you listen to or talks you go to what matters is if you can listen to understand and and to and to assimilate and to really grasp where somebody is coming from. Um, If you can do that for a half hour every month, you're better off than if you read for 10 hours every month and don't accomplish that kind of um, high level integration and adoption of of leadership ideas. So I seek and search for sources that I can really engage with that way, if that makes sense. And, And for me, that tends to be in more bite-sized readings that tends to be in podcasts that tends to be in conversations with people whose um, opinion I, I'm, I'm really excited about and interested in um, uh, you know but really I think that it's about finding sources of information that make you think and and kind of stir the fire in your belly a little bit and, and get you excited about new ideas. I think anything, along that line, no matter how you consume it is, is equally valid and valuable to, to personal growth. So I try to seek that stuff out and, um, and take some notes, um, after I listen to it, so it doesn't go straight out of my brain. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the approach.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I struggle. The biggest thing I think I struggle with is I consume a lot and take a lot of notes but then I struggled to kind of organize all these thoughts and things that I've read. And it's not that I necessarily forget them all. Cause obviously, again, I have them written down, but trying to formulate all these different interests and things you read. And again, like I think Greg Popovich had a quote, this is probably six, seven years ago. He said, there's so much information out there and so much material books. He's like, do you not read any of it and just continue on with your life or do you try to consume it all? And it's like, what's that fine line? You know, because again, there's, yeah so much out there. And again, like whether it's this podcast or tomorrow, there's, you know, 300 new podcasts in the country that just evolved. You know what I mean? Every day, there's just so much out there and it's, how do you gather all that, understand it? Like you said, kind of the listening part, which is huge um, and then process it and then end up using, you know, what you need out of there.
1: I think a great way to think about it is, you know, if you go in and you work out for two hours and you shoot a thousand shots and you don't remember any of them, but you go in for a half hour and you can remember every single rep or you have a high high memory and impression of your reps because you're so dialed in and you're so focused, guess which workout's gonna serve you better? Not the thousand shots. That's not gonna do you much, right? Like it's about purposeful game-like reps. And so I don't think personal growth should be an obligation. I think it has to be like growth is always and exclusively voluntary. Like you can't grow without your own consent. And so trying to grow out of an obligation to grow, or I should be reading, or I should be reading this book, but you're not interested and you don't have any, it doesn't get you, it doesn't, you know, when you try to consume it, it doesn't, and give it an honest effort, it doesn't engage you I don't think you're going to grow very much. And I think it's at that point important to like, like line up. What, what are you passionate about? What fires you up? Dive into that and follow that where it it takes you because you'll learn a ton and you'll retain a hell of a lot more. That's kind of been my, my two cents on it as I've tried to figure out how to develop. Um, And I, by no means haven't figured out, but that's, that's where I am at the moment.
0: That's a growth thing, right? We're always evolving and always trying to figure it out. 100%. Well, Matt, I appreciate you sitting down, taking some time tonight. Honestly, love this episode, and uh, think the listeners will get a lot from it.
1: Well, I hope so. Uh, Marcus, you're one of the good guys, man. I really appreciate you. Thanks for being uh, being a great friend and being um, a great friend of the game and the coaches, and um, for letting me come on among and 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 you know do an episode of this among company I don't deserve to keep. So hopefully, this doesn't this doesn't lower your profile too much. But it's been a treat, man.
0: Thank you.